John chapter 20. We've, we've tried Jesus, we've killed Jesus, we've buried Jesus, we've raised Jesus, or God has raised Jesus, excuse me. God has raised Jesus. And we've had his appearance now to Mary Magdalene. She thought he was the gardener. He spoke to her, called her by name. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to my, sending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And as we discovered, as we read in parallel from Matthew and Mark and Luke, that Matthew and Mark and Luke all agree with John that Mary was the first eyewitness of the resurrection. She was the first proclaimer of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection itself. Interesting that um, they couldn't bury that one. I mean, they, 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 it's interesting how John brought in Peter and, and the beloved disciple, uh, whereas you know, Mark didn't even do that. And we saw uh, Peter being brought in over in Luke, um, but there's no way that they could try to give that affirmation to any of the 12 or the 11 who's left. Instead, it goes to Mary Magdalene, which is a historical echo of uh, veracity, one of those things that would not have been made up. And if they could have buried it historically, they would have buried it, but they couldn't bury it historically, and it certainly wasn't made up. Um, that violates Occam's razor principle of the most likely being the reality. And since it's least likely, there you go. Um, that a woman would be given the affirmation of the resurrection, the first person to proclaim it the first person to witness it. Verse 19, when it was evening on that day, that's the resurrection day, first day of the week, Sunday morning. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. There's that little phrasing again. You know. Well, the disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Their inner circle was a Jew. Those and, guys. But it's those Jews, the the Jews, the the bad Jews, the, the leaders of the Jews. It's that phrasing. We've seen it again and again and again and again and again, which is an echo of an actual later usage of the concept or the term by a church that is far more mixed and looks back on the Jewish leadership with quite a lot of suspicion, having been tossed out of synagogues. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Doesn't say how he came, he just bango, he, he appeared, poof. poof. Uh, Scotty beamed him down. I mean, it's almost that kind of you know uh, mysterious, miraculous happening. You think he was doing things. He really can do things now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said, which is a fabulous greeting. I mean, first of all, it has a practical connotation. Uh, you don't have to be afraid. <laughs> Peace be with you. I'm not going to be some ghost that's going to bite off your head. I, I'm here to proclaim peace. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Interesting. Now, I thought when we read Luke and then when over in the Acts of the Apostles, I thought the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost, not on Easter evening, but on Pentecost, 50 days later. This was just a taste. Appetizer of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, the, the Holy Spirit by halitosis. Uh, Jesus breathes on them. Now there's an interesting image here. Uh, and, and, and remember, we had this fascinating parallel at the very beginning of John between John and Genesis chapter 1. Here we have yet another interesting parallel between John and Genesis. For in Genesis, God forms the earth creature from the Adamai from the dirt of the ground creates the Adam from the dirt, the Adamai of the ground, and then he breathes into the Adam and creates, gives him a living spirit. Here we have Jesus doing much the same thing to the disciples. He breathes on them. And that word breathe, now in, in Greek it doesn't have that connotation. This is an echo back to an idea that is steeped in the Hebrew and the Aramaic, that the breath, ruach, of God is the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, it means breath, it means wind, it means gush of air, the, the breeze, the breath, the wind, the Spirit of God. The Hebrew people likened the Spirit of God to the wind that blows the leaves and the trees the wind that causes the ripples across the surface of the water uh, on, on the Sea of Galilee, the, 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 the breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God is all a, a very common, uh, almost equal idea or thing. And here we have Jesus doing essentially what the Father does when he creates the Adam, the earth creature, and then breathes into the earth creature and the earth creature becomes a living spirit. Here we have something very similar. It says, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you think then everything fit together from what Jesus taught them? And do you think then they understood? This is the beginning of that process. This is, I think, the beginning of the process whereby they receive, in a sense, they receive the mind of Christ. They, they begin to understand and to comprehend that which they have experienced, that's which they have been taught. What they've been taught has been sitting there. Now it's being integrated with their experience, what they saw, what they experienced about Jesus in his life, his teachings, and now his death and his resurrection. And it, it's certainly a, a factor in this process. Also, notice what he says to them immediately after he breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And it's kind of interesting that this pops up right here. The very first thing that Jesus does with the disciples after his resurrection, he appears to them, he says, peace be with them, he shows them his hands and his side, and then he breathes on them. He, he imparts to them the Holy Spirit, and then he gives them a directive. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What do you think that means that he's, the first thing that he does after he's been, you know, murdered, after he's been killed by us, and now after he's been, oh, oh and also after all of these guys have in one way or another denied him, except for John, denied him, Peter three times, and run away. <clears throat> what do you think it means that he's suddenly doing this? He wants them to forgive. He wants them to forgive. You don't hold this against anybody or even against yourself. That's the first proclamation. That's the first aspect. The sins of any you forgive, they are forgiven. What about the second part? And if you don't forgive people, it's as if you are not forgiven. Okay, that goes right back to the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forgive us our sins. Yeah. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, that, that concept is endemic here, too. You know, if we are not a forgiving people, we better not be expecting to be forgiven. Well, that's just a general admonition. But it does have an impact here. But what he says is point blank. You forgive sins, they are forgiven. I mean, one of the, one of the things that just got the Jewish leadership so ticked off at Jesus was is that he had the authority to forgive sin. Well, now the disciples do too. Mm -hmm. Not just the sins against them personally. That you can forgive. But this is any. And if you don't forgive the sins, they aren't forgiven. That is, that's power. Yeah. Do, they, do they mean they are not forgiven or I have, I have not forgiven them. In other words, it's not up Let's to look the person It's not up to the person okay, who sinned, right? No, it's not up to the person who sinned. No, no, no. It's not up to the person who sinned. It's up to the question of being forgiven or not forgiven. Well, are we too, is it the same as yep. was being said here about them receiving this Holy Spirit and as we eloquently said there, they're finally beginning to get it. Yes. Isn't he trying to take, at this point, isn't he taking them to that higher state that he was at? And this is what you do now. You He's, forgive those that have, and the biggest thing that they were going to have to forgive was going to have to be those that were in control, those that were persecuting them at the moment, that they were running scared from. Okay, that's, that is absolutely an aspect of it. That's a component of it. That this is part of what is going on here. The very first thing he does with them is he says to them, you, have the, you, you now have the authority to forgive. And if you forgive, it's forgiven. Period. It's as if I did it. And then he tells them the opposite side of that. If, if you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. And the first part, we don't have a problem with, really, in the church. We've experienced it. We know it's true that not only do we, are we called to forgive the sins that are committed against us, but if we are faced with someone who is 
eaten up with con, uh, with guilt and is very in contrition over sin that they themselves have committed against God, and they're seeking forgiveness. We as Christians have the authority to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I mean, that is a very you know we talk about miracles. Uh, and I, I, my definition of a miracle is an, an, aspects of, an aspect of the presence of God that intrudes upon time into our lives. You can explain it or you can't explain it. It doesn't matter. It's still a miracle. The birth of a baby is a miracle. I don't care that you can explain it genetically and biologically. It's a miracle. There are miracles you can explain scientifically and there are miracles you can't. They simply are. And forgiveness is an example of that. There might be psychological answers to why it works, but in reality, in the end, it, that's unimportant. What's important is, is that we have the authority to do it. And it has real power, the ability to forgive. It also has real power if you don't. What if you don't? Where that's, my, that's my question. Okay. Where, I, where I've got a problem is, you know, obviously Jesus is talking about the ones that crucified him. Not just the ones who crucified no, Well, they, yes, they, yes, they, yes. All right, then they believe him and they've got the power. Then they go in and, for instance, Stephen goes in there charging, I'm going to forgive you and all that. They stone him to death. Yeah. The other disciples finally back off. They just give up on it and they go to the other countries. Yeah. To provide the gospel uh, so, elsewhere. So did, so did the other disciples forgive those Jews there? Or did they just abandon it and say, hey, let's go somewhere else? We can ask them when we get to heaven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My opinion is, is that's precisely what they were called to do. They were called to forgive the Jewish leadership. They were called to forgive themselves for having run away and failed Jesus. So, I mean, all of those factors are involved. But when you don't do it, it's when you have real problems. The sin is retained. The damage is retained. The pain is retained. I mean, that's what it, that's what it says here. That's why it uses that concept and that word, it is retained. The sins of any that are retained, kept, they are kept. They keep on doing their damage. We've seen on TV the families of... of uh loved ones who have been murdered, yes. some of them have a hard time to forgive. But they're hurting. They're because hurting. they don't forgive. Eventually you come to the point, though, where you have to be able to forgive. Yeah. If you don't, then the damage of the sin continues to inflict its toll. That's why, psychologically, that's why forgiveness is so critically important and why this, this granting of authority is probably one of the greatest gifts of power like to people that God ever gave. Isn't that a way, him doing the other way, saying those that, those sins you retain or don't forgive, that he's showing them they how great that authority is. How you got to be careful. You do. You do have to be careful. Forgive sins, but also, you know, if think you, about... There are implications if you it. don't. There may be, and I actually believe there are there are cases where we are called to not, at least immediately, forgive someone. Um, that sounds a little strange, 
But someone who is not eaten up with guilt, someone who's not contrite, someone who hasn't recognized that what they did was wrong, someone who's upset just because they got caught, not because mm-hmm. what they did was wrong. There are, there are places and times in which not extending forgiveness is actually the thing to do because they're not ready yet. They haven't been brought to the point by God of being able to, to recognize that they need to seek forgiveness. You, it's tough. I'm the kind of person who just wants to go ahead and just forgive and get it over with, get it out of the way, thinking that that will ha- move the person onward. And sometimes it does, but usually it doesn't. When you have someone who is not contrite, someone who doesn't want to, doesn't think they need to be forgiven, doesn't believe they've done anything wrong that needs to be forgiven, or think they did right when they hurt you, uh, when you when you've got someone like that, it, forgiving them is useless. You're usually useless, except for yourself. So sometimes you have to forgive them inside yourself and don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> You forgive them internally and, and hand it all over to God where it belongs anyway. But they may not be ready to hear that. That, that level of discernment is tough. But it's one that I think everyone here is capable of doing in your given circumstances. There are people you know you need to go out just to forgive immediately. The other people you know, well, they're not ready even to hear that yet. And while I can forgive them in here, in my heart and soul, uh, it, they don't need yet to hear <laughs> that they are forgiven. God is still working on them. God is still working on them. They're not, they haven't been brought yet to the point where they need to say, I need to be forgiven. Would you please forgive me? So that's where you say, hey, I feel sorry for them because they don't know what they're doing. Right? Yeah. Father, forgive them. He right. turns it over to God. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right. Wow. Well, that's I don't I still don't understand this. If you retain the sins of others, in other words, if I'm the disciple and Jesus is talking to me and He's saying to me, if if I Gloria, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained <laughs> by whom? Uh, by them, by God, by you. Okay. That's still held against them. The sin is still sitting on their heads even though Jesus died for it. The impact, the implication, the penalty, the everything that goes with it is still sitting on, it, on their head. They're not yet capable of receiving the forgiveness that flows from the cross. Even though it's been totally paid for by Jesus on the cross, it's not yet ready to flow, just as the death of Jesus brings salvation for the whole world, potentially speaking. It doesn't get to everybody until faith comes and faith makes the connection with Christ on the cross and then grace flows from there and forgiveness occurs. That's the idea. Until, until they are ready to be forgiven, until there's, there's true contrition <laughs> present in the person, until their, their guilt has driven them to the point to recognize that what they did was wrong because it was an affront against God, an affront against their brother or sister. What they did was wrong in and of itself and not just because they got caught. Once they've reached that point, then they can be forgiven. Refusal to recognize the reality of one's sin stops up, clogs up 
the conduits through which God's grace to forgive flows. Makes it impossible for one to actually exercise faith. And if you forgave someone who was in that state, it would do them no good. Do you know? Well, it would do you some good because it would relieve you of the agony of suffering from what they had done in many ways. But it would do the person who sinned no good. They still wouldn't be able to access it on the cross until God drove them to the point of recognizing that the old Roman Catholic proclamation, mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa, uh, I'm at fault, I'm at fault, the fault is totally my own. When you recognize that idea, when you come to understand that idea, then, then you understand that what Jesus did on the cross did for you for that very event. You need that grace. You need that forgiveness because otherwise you're in deep doo-doo. Mm-hmm. You know, last week they had a situation where a mother drove into a waterway. <clears throat> One son provi- uh, survived. But he said last minute, you heard his mother say, oh, I made a mistake. So, you know, you don't know unless you're there. Wow. That, that she, uh, no, that's true too. You, but she did something wrong. Wow. I'm asking for forgiveness then. Could have been. Yep. We saw this in Judas. Judas was eaten up with guilt. He knew he had done it wrong. He knew he failed. And he tried to find a way to make restitution. And the only way he can think of to make restitution is what? Give up his life. Give up his life. That is an indicator of true contrition. Wow. Hmm. And and for so many centuries, the church has, you know, been rather cruel on Judas. He's depicted so negatively in Scripture, too. He's the one who stole from the money bag. <laughs> John didn't like There's a case where he didn't, he didn't know what he was doing, right? Yeah. Really, he thought he was doing good. And if Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that them includes Judas. And if Jesus says, Father, forgive them, guess what? And here the church has persecuted Jews for centuries, or did for centuries, for having killed Jesus. Well, that's crazy. Of course it's crazy. <laughs> didn't even listen to what Jesus himself said. And yet, that's just what we do. We they fail. Be there. <laughs> we fail. It's why it's 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 why you know, the church in the last century really has come to realize, it's come to a degree of maturity and realized that it wasn't the Jews just who killed him. It wasn't one of the Romans who killed him. It was all of us who killed him. All of our sins put him there. Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I voiced the uh, question before. I wonder if Peter truly forgave himself. Well, he, he did. I mean, after this discussion, he had to have, or he wouldn't have done what have he, he did throughout the rest of his life. Thank you. He would not have been able to continue. Mm-hmm. Except that he has to be crucified upside down. Anyway. In the way in which... So no, he has to be crucified. He asked When they were going to execute him, they said... Please, I, they, they told him they were going to crucify him. And he says, oh, it's going to be an honor for me to die as my, my Lord died. And they laughed. And so they crucified him upside down instead. <laughs> that's, that's the tradition. Now, we don't know that for a fact, but it's probably true that that's how and why that happened. It, 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 to crucify someone ill-dignified was not 
very common, but they would sometimes do that when they wanted to really be mean. Of course, you die a heck of a lot faster, too. There's no way you can hold yourself up. Every smart thing. And all the blood goes to your head. Yeah. Yep. You lose consciousness pretty fast. Ooh. Yeah. All right. The sins of any that you forgive are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's a huge obligation, a huge calling, a critical degree of authority. I tend to go back to that very first part of it. We're called to forgive and recognize that when we don't, we better have good reasons. But we probably ought to go ahead and do it internally anyway for ourselves. I was noticing here in the um, the bottom section here in my Bible. Your notes. The notes. <clears throat> and it's saying there on that on that last chapter, on, chapter, on uh, verse twenty three, it says that um, that based uh, based on them recalling God's breath of life in Genesis two twenty seven, mm-hmm. which you just referred to in Ezekiel thirty seven nine, and the suggests a new creation. Mm-hmm. So the standpoint that we all have always heard that when we take on Christ, we become a new creature. So the standpoint of him breathing the Holy Spirit onto them, again, ascending them to a different plane than what they had been before, where they are students and learning, you are now are going to become the teacher. Mm-hmm. You are going to be here being able to look out upon the lambs, his sheep, when he asks us to tend his sheep and bring them to the realization that this forgiveness is for all. And of course, by all means, you have to start with yourself. Oh yeah. It's a recreation of us, totally, of humanity. It's a recreation of the disciples first and everybody who enters into the church. Just as with Adam, the earth creature, God breathes into him and he becomes a living spirit. So now Christ breathes into us and we become a new level of living spirit. No longer is our relationship built upon law. It's built upon forgiveness. It's no longer built upon your ability to approximate or obey the law. It's built upon forgiveness from God. That's what he was talking to Nicodemus about. Mm-hmm. Being born again, being born from above, you, being born anew. Those ideas all stem from the new relationship above. Using the same analogy of the wind. You know, yes. Going, you know. Yeah, the wind blows where it wills. And you do not understand it. You still don't. Let's move forward. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Look, I'm from Missouri and I'm not gonna believe it until I see it with my own peepers. A week later, and by the way, that is just totally in character with Thomas we have from everywhere. This idea that he's just, you know, he's very, very pessimistic. He's just not going to believe it. A week later, a week later, wow, what was Jesus doing? 
<laughs> that's a week. I mean, oh, come on, that's a week later. <laughs> they're still at the same house. A week later, his disciples were again in the house. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <laughs> it's like a rerun. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Faith. You know, that, that word right there, that believe word is, is, of course, faith in the verb form, as it is throughout this entire section here, throughout, throughout the entire New Testament. <laughs> Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but exercise belief, faith. Thomas answered him. Now, did Thomas do it? Nope. No, he didn't have to. Big talker, Thomas. But look, Jesus appears out of nowhere. You're in a room. You're in a house. Door's locked. You're there. Jesus suddenly zap. He's there in their midst. He turns and talks to you. You had talked big about wanting to put your finger in the holes and in the side. And then Jesus submits himself to the test. And Thomas wimps out. Well, I've been in like Jesus for Jesus showed him, yeah. But he said, I won't believe it until I put my finger in the holes. Well, <laughs> yeah, right, Thomas. But that's exactly us, by the way. Even those who are doubters right. and those who are skeptics, they, have, they usually proclaim they have a much higher standard for believing or having faith than, uh, <laughs> than they actually need. And that's what we have here in, in many ways. That's what we have here. Thomas answered him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. <laughs> Jesus said to him, Have you believed? Have you faithed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to faith, come to exercise belief. Why say amen to that? That's a statement for the whole church post-resurrection appearance time to us today, to the church in 90 AD that this is being written to, the church to us today in 2011, where we don't have this experience, but we nevertheless have experience of the resurrected Christ. We nevertheless have an experience of the immediate real presence of Jesus in our midst. And we may not be able to see it with our eyes and put our fingers in holes. But we know Jesus is here. We experience it. And we believe. We exercise faith. And you, you believe, you've faithed now because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen, do not see, will not see. And yet, faith. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Uh, very clearly, the author is aware that there's just plenty of stuff that hasn't been written down, either from the life of Jesus or the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. 
That's essentially unimportant. Did he get tired of writing or why? <laughs> why, why, why would he stop there if he, if he wants to point out one miracle? He's, why why didn't he, he keep telling us He said it? enough. He said enough, essentially. Remember, this is the first ending. All right? This is the first ending. This is the ending of the stuff that I think is unquestionably, you know, um, comes from John through editors in multiple layers. Um, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and here's the answer to your question, but these are written so that you may come to faith that Jesus is, that notice, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through faithing you may have life in his name. I mean, it's not to explicate the entirety of Jesus' life in, in minute detail and all the signs and wonders that he performed and all the post-resurrection experiences of all of the disciples that they went through. It's not to do, not to do that. The purpose here is so that you may faith, you may have faith, that you may exercise belief. And, and either to begin with or to continue to believe in him. He has a theological agenda. He has something he wants to say, and he chose from the material available to him these particular incidents to illustrate his theological... Principally because they were probably the strongest ones to make his point. The strongest ones that make his point. That's what makes me believe this was written actually by several people because mm -hmm. they continue on right now they said it's not written here then the, we next, more. the next paragraph they go ahead and tell about more in 21 we have another author for clearly I mean, there's right. no question about that yep. mm -hmm. um, just about every single scholar that I know of when they read this even the most conservative interpreters will say chapter 21 was written by a later editor who edited the rest of it too to some degree or some litter, some some greater, some lesser, depends on your on your scholar. But twenty one has lots of differences in it, and the perspective is slightly different. And it and it does, it does you know if you didn't have twenty let us say you didn't have twenty one, you'd think you're done, yeah. wouldn't you? It's over with. The, the gospel's finished. The gospel is completed. But yet it does. It continues with another chapter. We have, as we've looked at, we have multiple layers in John's Gospel. You have that earliest layer, where you have many of the stories interconnected and strung out like beads on a, on, a, on a string. And then you've got layers of interpretation on those stories, and application, and editorial work that kind of strings together these dialogues of Jesus into collections in chunks that seem to occur at certain points in time within this framework of a chronology that varies greatly from what we have from the synoptics to the point that you really can't reconcile. And then you have uh, another seeming layer of editing application of many of these to the church in the 90s 
And we've seen several instances of that where a story that was being told from Jesus's period, Jesus's teaching period early on, has then a theological interpretation that applies in general, and then a theological specific interpretation that applies to the persecution that the church is going through in the 90s AD. We've seen that in several layers as we've gone through John's Gospel. So you have these multiple layers and the sourcing of those layers, in many cases there seems to be a principal author and then there seems to be an editorial secondary author. Uh, and that principal author seems to have written in two stages, possibly one early and then one later. And then you have the editor upon it even later than that with the final sort of editorial gloss to put it all together. So you have all these different layers. And then suddenly in 21, you have a far more unified body of an event, narrative. It's quite, it's quite interesting to, just to catch the difference. And as I said, there's an interesting differentiation in vocabulary between chapters 1 through 20 and chapter 21. It's, it's, it, it, the utilization is a little bit different. Not totally dissimilar from the rest of it, but just a little bit different. And I, I, I've seen it cataloged the number of grammatical choices that 21 makes that 20, 1 through 20 never make. <laughs> But it seems to be the same person, or one of the same people, though, who's been involved with the rest of it. So it's obvious that whoever wrote 21 had the liberty to draft what he drafted in 21, did some work on the previous 20 chapters, but did not feel nearly as much at liberty to monkey around with certain grammatical structures. So we'll encounter that as we read 21. Are there any other questions before we move forward? So here we have the post-resurrection appearances to the disciples in the room. We have the first one, when he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. My, my question is, did Thomas get the Holy Spirit there? It doesn't say that he got breathed on. You missed yours. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was his twin? Who was Thomas's twin? I never heard that. I mean, they obviously made a point here. He was He's going, the twin. Didymus, Didymus. Yeah, the twin. But the twin of who? I don't know. Thomas must have meant something to the other disciples, or they well, there the was a twin of him around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he went and his brother in. Huh? <laughs> what? Did he get a good twin or a bad twin? <laughs> his evil twin. <laughs> well, he might have had a sister instead of a brother. Two well, still be it, twins. Yeah, it, it could yeah. have been a fraternal twin, right. but that don't, I don't know if they actually understood that differentiation. Uh, you. Very frequently in the ancient world, twin was only used only of someone who's identical. Because yeah. that was really weird. <laughs> no, twins are really weird anyway. Anybody here a twin? Anybody here have twins in your I family? Have to those. Are you a twin? Are they identical? Are they identicals? Uh, or close? Close. It's, it was hard to say. We can tell the difference. I am a twin. You we are? lost them at birth. Oh, uh, lost them at birth? I had friends in Michigan that were twins. Of course, you know, they were adults. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. They were pretty so identical. It was really hard to tell them apart if they were separate. Uh -huh. And the one used to get mad as heck if you called him by his brother. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. No. I had twin friends, Tom and Pat. And they were so identical, even together, they were hard to tell apart. 
it was scary because they wore the same thing. They did it on purpose. Uh, yeah. no, yeah. They, they would have their hair would be cut the same. They wear the exact same clothing. If one would have a bruise, the other would try to develop the same bruise. <laughs> <laughs> they would play with the teachers and get, you know, so <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, uh, one took, they had it scheduled so that they were in like algebra and English at different times, and then one took both English classes and the other took both algebra classes. <laughs> they were bad. They were bad. But uh, they they were great. But they would do things to just they would one would start a sentence and the other would finish it, and they would do things just to make you go crazy. They, they were they were evil. <laughs> this, these Too guys evil. George George and Clarence. Why that's far apart in names, I don't know. But but same thing. George was the one. I guess you saw him more often than you'd see Clarence once in a while. Say, hey, how you George? How you doing? No, I'm not George. It's I'm Clarence. <laughs> yeah, how do you know they're telling the truth? See, well, Tom and Pat would lie. He was serious because it really upset him when you call him George. <laughs> see, Tom and Pat would lie. Tom, Tom, and Tom, and Pat would wait, wait, switch identities in mid-conversation. You catch him at it. <laughs> I thought you were Pat. Oh, oh, yeah, you were Pat. <laughs> they would get on each other's nerves that way. I mean, they were that way. I had two that went to school with me. Name was Larry and Larue. One was Larry, and the other one was Larue. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Did Thomas get the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, I, it doesn't say that he does. I see. <laughs> he had to wait. To, you got to wait fifty days for yours. Uh, I'm sure it's Forty-three Spirit days. It was scared into him when Jesus appeared. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I believe. I believe. Uh, I just had I a South Park image coming. You just had a South Park image. You just had a South Park image. How that would be done in South Park? Yeah, yeah it would be. Ah, uh, so here we got. Yeah, I got the same image. <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we should continue in 21 since we've still got a whole 15, 20 minutes. Chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, now that's interesting. We were in Jerusalem. Now we're back up in Galilee. Remember the promise from the synoptics? He will meet you in Galilee. Well, now we're picking up again in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. Again, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. I guess the guy who was taking notes here just kind of... Does that add up? Yeah. No, it doesn't add up. No, it doesn't add up. Right Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, thus far, it may not be obvious well, this is very different from the other narratives. I've been there and done that. Well, yeah. well, I've done that too. All night, no fish, yeah. I've done that. Or me, no fish, dad, lots of fish. That I've had a lot of too. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. But the disciples 
did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? <laughs> that would make me mad. <laughs> if I didn't know it was Jesus and someone yelled at me, hey kids, you don't have any fish, do you? What's and here I'm a 40 year old man, I'd be mad. What's the date call him and yours? Children. Children. Children, okay, says friends of mine. Why, why would he use that expression? All right, let's find out what the Greek says. Let me see if it's children and not so some weirdness of the NRSV. Hmm. Padilla, children, babies, kids. He must have appeared as an older man, you think? Like I don't know. Children? I don't know if that's what it means or if it was more along the lines of... Uh, you guys, hey, you guys. <laughs> uh... Well, it's kind of like when someone of a superior standing, spiritual standing, addresses someone of a lesser spiritual standing and calls them children. Oh, he felt fatherly toward them. Yeah, there's that. Mm -hmm. Was he testing them to see if they would really look and see who was there? They were his children. We are his children. Thank you. That's true. We are God's yeah. children. Mm -hmm. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? Still would make me mad. It sounds like a taunt. They answered, no. <laughs> he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat. But have they only been casting the net to the left side of the boat all night long? Okay, now I got the Disney movie. Right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure there are fish on the other side of my Look at the fools, they dropped the net, we're over here. <laughs> Sorry, this is. I don't see why people find the Bible boring. This is hilarious. No, no. Children, have you no fish? Have you? No. Hey, cast your net to the right side of the boat. This What's time. your point, Jesus? <laughs> You'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter. It is the Lord. <laughs> By the way, was he listed in this listing up front? No. No. No, <laughs> no it was the sons of Zebedee, wasn't that John? But you're assuming you're the beloved disciples, John. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> you have to assume that. It may not be John. Actually, right. But it is John, mm. but nevertheless. Well, it's interesting how that's referenced. Yeah. It's interesting how it's referenced. But the other disciple, uh, it, uh, let's skip the line. Here we go. So they did. They cast. So they cast it. Let's go back. Yeah. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Now this is just kind of like a light bulb moment here. Okay, we've had this happen before. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some. Now this is weird. He put on some clothes. For he was naked. Why didn't he just swim naked? He wouldn't have had no clothes when he got to the shore. Thank you! He wouldn't have had any clothing on when he got to the shore. He put on some clothes, for he was naked. You go fishing naked. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Well, you're, you're not, you're not dealing boys. with hooks and whatnot. You're throwing a net, and you're going to get hot and sweaty doing it, so... It actually makes a lot of sense. 
And it was just a bunch of guys. So. It was Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on some clothes, for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only a hundred yards off. That's 200 cubits in Greek. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there. Zap, and he created a charcoal fire again. With fish on it. Wait a minute now. With fish on it and, and bread. Well, where did they get the fish? It's Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Miracle caterer. He makes loaves and fish. He, hey, you. Yeah. Fish. Get on that fire. Get on that fire. <laughs> bread. Zap. He was a better fisherman. <laughs> yeah. You think? Jesus said, of course, it's not enough. When they came ashore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I only got enough here for me, friends. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. A hundred and fifty-three of them. I knew I should have brought that stuff. And though there were so many, the net was not Okay. So How was he able to drag them when all of them wouldn't? All right. Let, which question first? Oh. What? what? St. Peter's fish, huh? Well, these oh, are all yeah. going to be tilapia, yeah. yeah. We, we've eaten those, okay. But how was he able to drag it by himself when all of them together couldn't drag it in? Well, now that it's it's shallow there, it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Notice what it says. I mean, we don't normally have this kind of precision. In, in the gospel. And that was probably dragged up to Joseph's place where we ate, wasn't it? Remember? The, nope. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is taking place, this is taking place at Peter's primacy. This is, uh, traditionally, this is where it took place. You know, where we had communion and you were called Mother Superior? Yeah. That was yeah. <laughs> this is essentially, this is traditionally the site of this event. Where we got on the boat. No, that's around the corner from there. Yeah. This is where we stopped and had communion, and then we went down and we we went all the walked down to the Sea of Galilee there, where it had been receded all the way back, yeah. past that nice, fairly new church structure. Right, so that would have been in that area. It would have been right in that area okay. there. That's traditionally where this is supposed to have taken place, really close to where the loaves and the fishes miracle took place. All right, it's kind of like next door because that that is just next door, Tadka. So, um, notice this precision. So, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred 
and 53 of them. Why 153? Who counted them? One, two, three. <laughs> you missed one. Four. Four and a half. Five. That was too small. Too small, yeah. 153. What is this 153? You mean there's What's some numerology with this? What's, what? it? <laughs> What's it? Your Greek or whatever is that? No, it's 153. Is it? Oh. it is 100. There's no question. Oh. Is your number different? No, it's 153. 153. 153. What's I don't know what. This right here said the sum of the numbers 1 to 17 is 153. 17, anyway, bo uh, both of which indicate completeness and perfection. Oh, that just gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> That's one answer. I'm going to tell you something. This one verse, and this 153, has occasioned so much debate throughout the history of the church. I mean, with all this other stuff to deal with, these esoteric church fathers tended to kind of like, like this one right here. Why 153? That's a weird number. And you identified one meaning to it. Read that again. The miracle, let's see. The sum of the numbers 1 to 17 is 153. 17 is the sum of 10 plus 7, both of which indicate the completeness and perfection. Uh, okay, that is 1. That is 10 plus 7 is 17. 7 is the number of divine perfection. 10 is the number of completion. 7 plus 10 is 17. And 153 is what? The total of the numbers. Uh huh. Add it up. Add it up. And you get 153. Now that sounds extraordinarily esoteric, doesn't it? Now I, can, I have no trouble with 7 and I have no trouble with 10. I have no trouble with adding them together and getting 17. I have no trouble with that, none at all. But then who in the heck thought to add up all of those numbers, 1 to 17? <laughs> To get 153. And then use that as your basis for the number of fish that was caught. That sounds weird, don't it? Yeah. That's just one argument. <laughs> Where were they getting 153 from? Okay, now I know some of you, Bill, are really good at Googling. Your homework, your mission, if you wish to accept it. <laughs> between now and next Thursday, which will be our last session together, oh. is to go and look up this 153 from John chapter 21. Okay. And if, see if you can come up with one or two other explanations. <laughs> one or two? Just one or two. <laughs> just, just one or two other explanations for what the 153 might mean. Now that's a good one. That's a real, that's, that's one of the more famous ones. That's the sum of 1 to 17, with the 10 being the number of completion, 7 the number of divine perfection added together. And you get 153. That's an interesting observation. But is that actually what did, where that number comes from? And what does that mean? Uh, 
we'll see, won't we? <laughs> well, in your Sunday school class, we're discovering Kabbalah. Kabbalah, mm -hmm. rather. The numerology. numerology. Uh -huh. So is this, it must have been from the Jewish religion? Well, this is a, that is one of the understandings that the one, that, the reason why this is interesting because 153 is such an unusual number. Why would, you know, if they're making up a number, just say he's made it up, why would he make up 153 and not 154? Or just 150. Or 150. That would make more sense. Yeah. Uh, how do they, get, unless somebody sat there literally going, one, two, three, where do they get 153 from? I would think that they would have had to have counted the fish because they would have sold them in market. They would have taken what they... Nominally speaking, yeah. yeah. That would have been the so idea. So they would have had to have some kind of idea what the number was. Totally. That would be if they were counting the fish, you know, to sell. Of course, it doesn't actually say that's what they were going to do. But they're going to eat them, though. Well, they're going to eat at least a few of them. They're going to eat a few of them. Anyway. They're not that many. Yeah. My God, they can't eat 153 fish. Well, they, probably, <laughs> they probably ate three, and then they sold 150. Yeah, they, there you go. They ate three and sold the other 150. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, they told them to bring some more. Yeah, bring some more. They didn't have enough. That's what he says. When they had gone ashore, they saw the charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Oh, okay. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. You know, I, if you catch that many fish, and that's a lot of fish, I mean, if they're, they're whatever it was, saying or whatever it was, was full, and it was just a huge amount of fish, they probably said, well, let's count and see how much these, how many we have. <laughs> There's probably nothing more than that. It's fascinating if you think about it because if that's the answer, then to have such an interesting number and to have so much debate over its meaning across and the centuries. No, I mean, there's no way that that's, they just threw that in there random. Oh, we'll just throw in the fact that we caught 153 fish. It's got to have some kind yeah, of meaning. See, now there you go. There's the church father talking. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Augustine. Augustine saying there's no way that this number could have gotten in our Bibles without there being an intention for some specific meaning for 153. And what it was that these disciple dudes out there going, one, two, <laughs> This is where we'll pick up next time. And it's, it sounds a little strange. And I really encourage you, if you, have, if you think about it, go on Google and Google this verse. Google 153 fish and see what you come up with. You will find websites. You will, Wikipedia has this whole thing on the subject. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. There are lots of theories as to what it means. One of them is yours, but they just counted them fish up, and that's how they came up with it, and that there's no esoteric meaning. But Most. Then why, why bother to put it in? Why would they put it in? It's yeah, just it's like, got to have some meaning. <laughs> well, does it? That's a good question. Does it have to have some meaning? Well, or is it like some of the other uh, periodic things in the stories, in the Gospels, that just kind of a little bit of detail that got in there that is an echo of an historic reality that just kind of slipped by the margins? Well, it must have a meaning because this is, the fish is only for them. It's not for the community or anybody. They went out fishing for themselves. Yeah. yeah. I'm going fishing. We'll go with you. But if it has a meaning, there should be some. 
You should have explained it. Why the heck didn't you explain this? You, you, you. Well, he doesn't. Didn't serve any purpose otherwise, did it? <laughs> well, yes, it did because it resulted in debate for centuries. centuries. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? I mean That's why they won't find it's out. just debate. It has no meaning. One of the things about debate about these subjects is it causes people to then search the rest of Scripture. Try and find answers. Google. It, not just, I mean, back in the ancient world, it would cause them then to read the rest of Scripture to try to find answers to these. Are there any other examples in Scripture of 153 of something? That's probably why they should have stopped at verse 30. So you start research and see what other miracles he did, right? It didn't tell how many fish he had on the fire or no, it just no. said some with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Well, I want a sausage and egg biscuit, not a fish, not a fish biscuit. I want a sausage and egg muffin. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Or where did you get? <laughs> what does it mean that we have 153 fish? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was how the third this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We'll pick it up with the 153 fish in his mini esoteric readings next week. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.